0: This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's cheaper for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. Yeah. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Welcome back. Today, we're sitting down with... Lee Gilmore. Lee, um, this is great. It's late at night. We're in the office. We're having a few beers. Um, we often talk late at night and tonight it's just nice to be able to sit down in my office in a relaxed sort of environment and talk about, um, well, I'm calling this sessioner uh, Ask Me Anything. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a good idea or not, but... Um, you know, before we press record, we're just doing some sound level checks and you're in a band, so you know more about the microphones that we're hiding and holding in the recording device than I ever will. So you're quite at home. (laughs)
1: Well, we'll soon find out, won't we?
0: (laughs) Anyway, thanks for um, agreeing to come on, on board. Um, I'm just going to give those people listening a bit of a background on what you do, um, you are my
1: IT go-to man.
0: Is that a bad label to be called an IT
1: person? Oh, it's uh, IT generalist is, is probably what I go under, but yeah, you can call me your IT go-to man, IT person, guru, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I think that we started collaborating, and working together, I'm thinking 2012, so six years ago.
1: Yeah, probably be about the right time frame. And
0: if we can just go back, I'd bought an accountancy practice in Norwood and I was trying for the life of me to link that new office to my existing office in Myrtle Bank via a VPN private network. And because what I was trying to do was when I was meeting with customers there and I needed to get files from back here, I wanted to grab a file and transport it over the internet through a you know, like a secure tunnel. And I think you helped me build that. But but more importantly, I don't want to get bogged down in the nitty gritty of all of that, but what I think it's important to understand is that um, I've outsourced everything IT in my office to you. And so <laughs> good or bad, because I used to be the IT person, you know, starting out when I started out in 2000, all the way up, I did it for 12 years. I was the IT person. When a computer used to crash, I would go hell for leather for six hours straight rebuilding the damn thing. And at the end of that, I think after doing that way too many times because of crappy equipment or hard drives which had failed or I don't know, but I decided enough is enough. I need to get an expert and you were the person for the job and we decided to get together and it's been a great collaboration because... um, you're the sort of person that I can ring and I hate doing this, but it happens all too often on a Sunday late at night. Any night could be nine o'clock. If my computer crashes, I ring the emergency number, which is your mobile. and (laughs) you, Crazily um, pick up and answer me and help me out. And I say, Lee, can you do this? And then you usually log in via team viewer or whatever. And you click and you move the mouse so damn fast on the screen, I can't see what the hell's happening. So I don't learn anything from it. But you always fix my problem. Is that the way you'd see this the the, the, the relationship?
1: No, oh, very very much so. But it works two ways on that stuff. There, you know, I'm I'm an IT person, not a, and I, I can't count to save myself. So it works the opposite way. You know, Kim, I need help with this, or you know, and it just happens. And that and that's how and that's how the relationship started. And uh, yeah, it's been a interesting journey up to this point, and still still developing and growing well and why we say that like
0: so i have been able to offer from time to time but i think it's less frequent than the it questions but so i feel like i you know um i'm in debit and you're in credit counting terms um I, well you know in simple terms that basically means that you help me more than i help you but i hope you feel it's more or less equal <laughs> anyway Um, I have been able to bring a bit of accounting expertise into your world and in your role where you're sort of making executive decisions in in your um, current capacity of where you're working, every now and then you'll have a tricky accounting question which you pitch to me and hopefully I'm giving you worthwhile answers. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, 100%. Yeah, okay. And also in your personal life, I've been able to help you um, make sure that the business that you run is on track and help you with all the accounting resources behind that to operate. Yep, that's Correctly. right. Yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah. Anyway, um, but the, the the beauty of our relationship is that, you know, you could be in the car driving or I can be working away in the wee hours at night, which I don't like doing, but I can call you and I know that I can get a fix. And that is invaluable for me. Like if I was using anyone else, there wouldn't, you know, the, the phone goes off at five. And starts again at nine. And if you've got help problems after that time, God help you. You know. Mm. Whereas you you don't operate like that. You're a workaholic like me, and you love your work. And if you've if you're not on the phone, and you're not in the middle of some dinner at some beautiful restaurant with red wine, you'll pick up the phone and talk to me. There's been instances where I've picked up the phone <laughs> at, at said places. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, um, moving on from that, you are you have been a. Um, a fan of the Accounting Insider, right? Because I know epi- that because, from episode one. Yeah, from episode one, because you do you do a lot of work in your country, and so you spend a lot of time commuting on those long, long drives. You've got me on the radio, oh, sorry, coming through your sound system, and you will often ring me and say, "Ah, you said such and such." So um, <clears throat> tonight's episode is actually following on from that ask me anything we've listed some I've listed some questions on the board um, and I think if you actually go back through all those podcasts you will hear the name Lee coming up from time to time I've, I've done a couple of questions but tonight we can drill down and go through them in more detail so Lee you can ask me anything hopefully it's accounting
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with the accounting and we, we see we where we end up knowing you it's probably going to end with cars or, or something exotic along the way there'll be a story attached I'm sure all right, well, and I hope I can answer these because I'm yep. on the
0: spot, and I want them to keep this off the cuff.
1: There's no, no, there's no script. Oh, that's oh, that's how it should be. That's how it should be. So we're going back to, to sort of very early uh, um, podcasts and we're talking about uh, building wealth predish- um, specifically through, you know, your model of accumulating wealth by means of property purchasing, property development, refinancing, obviously more investment properties along the way. So one of the questions... That I've got for you on that is, is one of the areas that you probably well I haven't heard you really touch on is you know uh, the, the model that you describe uh, what I call the accounting insiders um, model to wealth you know how does that apply and how does that work and is that applicable to you know your average salary earner or the, the young couple getting a start or do they do they need to take a, a, slight pre, a slightly separate path
0: well uh, I'm hearing you but I think you, your question is, I guess, twofold, isn't it? One is, how the hell do we borrow all this money with low income level? Is that, you know, that, because that when is, you're starting out, you're not on big wages. Oh, 100%. Um, or if you're in small business, um, it's even harder. How how the hell do you convince a bank to lend you money based on your income level? That That's pretty well it. Hmm. Um, well, it's not easy, and you <laughs> know, I guess this is a bit of a cop-out, but um, putting my loan-broking hat on, I am, you know, when I first became a loan broker, every deal that came in the door, every hint of a deal, every customer that I was doing a tax return for, I would try to convert that into a home loan and that was not the way to go so um, we tweaked the model to the point where we're only taking on the easy deals now because going back pre the gfc if you're over 18 you had a heartbeat you could do a low doc loan anyone could borrow money it's getting harder and harder the banks are being pickier with who they're lending money to so what i'm getting at is i'm only taking the low hanging fruit which means that I'm trying to only do loan broking now for the high income earners. Mm -hmm. When I got my foot in the door with property, it was pre-GFC. I bought a million dollars worth of property and a $300,000 accounting practice with $400 in the bank. It was a crazy deal for the bank. But in those days... If you could come up with a really convincing cash flow and put it in front of the bank, they would lend on a projection of a cash flow. They don't do that anymore. So to answer your question, it's hard. It's really damn hard. And you need to, um, if for someone who's on like a fifty dollars to $70,000 income, it's super hard. You can get things like rent for investment properties. You have to get creative in trying to include as much income, as many income streams as you can to get the deal over the line. So if you're buying a house and you're still living with mum and dad, it might be better to pitch it as an investment property to the bank as opposed to a principal place of residence. Do you see what I'm saying? Because you can bring in a rental income. If you're um, with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you might decide that you need to join forces to get that income level higher. For me, Loan broking, I'm trying to do loans for only the people who have got massive incomes, like your doctors, like your um, FIFO workers, um, any or or your executives or whatever. I'm trying not to get bogged down. I'm trying not to get involved on those uh, difficult loans because the same work is involved in doing a, a loan for a, $250,000 property as a $2.5 million property. And the rewards for the loan broker are um, are much higher. Um, You know, now to get back to it, I think I've half answered your question by trying to be as creative as you can by bringing in these other income sources. Um, The next question I think is like, how do you get that deposit together? Because, you know, really you're trying to get 20%. So if you're buying a, $600,000 Six hundred thousand dollar property. You need one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Now I know that if you're on a income and you're trying to save that up, well, then the house is probably going up at a rate of value faster than you can save the money. So you've got to get creative and you've got to think outside the square again on that. So the ways around that are to um, well, there's a beautiful model for doctors where uh, you know you plug all the numbers into a into a. Um, like a simulator sort of thing, an Excel spreadsheet. And you find that if you take out a personal loan for a deposit and you're still on a massive income, you can still meet the serviceability, like you, you can still make it all service, even if you're basically... And I'm not saying to hide anything from in the application, but a personal loan for a doctor to get their deposit when they're on a high income will still stack up And get the deal over the line as opposed to waiting all that time to for them to save up that deposit now that's for the really high income earners so that'll not just doctors but i'm just using them as an example for the high income earners um the other the other way that you might do it is by getting a parental guarantee so getting your parents to help you with the deposit by taking out a mortgage on their place or if they're on the pension and they have a debt-free house you can do equity unlock loans and all of that sort of stuff which is messy but it will still give them that that's where they can borrow based on their age a certain amount against their property and never have to make a repayment for the rest of their lives and the bank you know takes security over their property but they don't have to make any repayments and when they die then the loan gets paid out that that works as well so <clears throat> now the other thing is you could do it the traditional way by saving and and you know if I'm ambitious I might work a part time job or run a side hustle and try to get income from that um, to try to get that all inclusive uh, all exclude you know that elusive deposit. There are other things as well like um, you could uh, borrow more than eighty percent and pay lenders mortgage insurance. I don't really like that. That's an expensive way of of, of getting the money. But in those situations, you can borrow um, up to like, I think the sweet spot's about 87%. You can can go higher, but then it gets extremely expensive because the risk is much higher. But lenders mortgage insurance will enable you to have a lower deposits to still buy a property and still still get the deal over the line. Does that help?
1: No, it does. I suppose probably on that though is, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, you, you pop the, um, you know, the, the broker's hat on there for a bit. Um, and you, you spoke about the, you know, the, the, sort of, you know, picking the, the low hanging fruit as you sort of call it. What's, what gear are you having come across your desk in that space at the moment then what sort of, uh, you know, you're, you doing new stuff or you're doing refinances or? Well, um,
0: yeah, there's a bit of a mix. What, what, so if I look at last month, uh, was our biggest month in loan broking, um, Like, I'm hesitating because the deals that we wrote were deals which we had really, um, well, there was two massive deals. Um, One of them was a farm and our client, which was an accounting client, was working on that deal for a while and that hit some roadblocks. And we could see them hitting those roadblocks and we suggested, uh, we, we had a lot of connections in the whole farming sector finance um, through you know various, because of various connections and associations we've got in Adelaide. Um, so we were actually able to bring value to the table and run that by a few people that we knew just to see what they thought of that deal. But By that I'm saying really that we only got involved on that deal because the other road that the client was going down was taking too long and wasn't ending up in the result that they wanted. So it's like anything. If you know people that you think might have an answer and bring value to the table, you're happy to introduce them to that problem. And if they're good, they'll solve the problem and you benefit. So that was one of them. Um, Another one was it's quite funny, but, um, good friend of mine, uh, had bought a new property and I'd been giving him the service of just making sure that the loan rates that he was getting every time he caught up with his loan broker was sharp. Now it was disappointing at first when I started doing that because, um, I felt like I was basically coaching him and holding his hand and helping him for free and in his his broker would basically come in and match my rate and everyone was happy. However, um, what's actually happened in that one is, um, and this was also through people that I've met through my loan broking, Um, there's a bit of a a gap in the market now where because there's been a review into the home loan market in Australia, banks are penalising investors with interest-only loans. What you're seeing now is if investors take out principal and interest loans, they're actually getting like half a percent discount for taking a PI. and i Now, it costs the customer more money because they have to do not only interest but principal. But there is a significant saving there if they can um, satisfy the principal and interest repayment. So what I'm saying is interest only, let's just say, was $2,000 a month on a property and an interest rate of 4.5%. Um, P&I might be 5000 a month, but the interest rate is 4%. So there's a, if you can, orchestrate a deal where the client is actually um, paying P&I on the investment property and taking advantage of the lower interest rate. Um, and that's exactly what we did on this big deal that we refinanced. Um, we basically... The client was able to have their cake and eat it too because they could meet the principal and interest, which means you know that they're happy in their own mind because they're repaying that loan over thirty years. But they know that they're saving, and in these big loans, half a percent is a huge amount of money. You know, so when we sat down and did all of that on a whiteboard for the client, they were absolutely wrapped And I hate to say it, but the loan broker. English was the second language. And I actually, again, rang that broker and I said, I don't want to refinance this. I want you to understand what I'm explaining to you <laughs> and you to do it for my client. And I was driving the car and I had someone with me and um, because of the English language barrier, it was really frustrating. I had to explain to him probably three times in that phone on that phone call what I was trying to do. He said to me, I've been a loan broker for 20 years and I've never heard what you're talking about. And that was
1: like, I thought
0: oh, mate, okay. Well, what I'm trying to explain to you is not rocket science. And I said, look, don't worry. I'll, I'll just see if I can, you know, um, I'll see if there's another way of doing it. But when I got off the phone, I thought I'm wasting my time hitting my head against a brick wall trying to explain this to this guy. I'm just going to go away. And refinance it myself and I and I actually could I found that I could and so I told my client that and then I showed him what he was gonna save in interest and he was over the moon and that was a really easy deal to refinance as well in it so you can see how I'm like I'm very cautious in what work I'm taking on I'm only taking on the really big stuff And if there's a massive saving there, and the broker isn't bringing value to the table, then I'm happy to step in and do it. Um, Two other deals we did during that month, one was a person who was listening to my podcast, Interstate, and really liked what I had to say, and they reached out to me, and then I helped them with a property that came up, and they bought, and so that happened, and that was in Victoria. And then the other one was a doctor that I was working with, um, and, um they had you know they'd gone out on their own they were a sole you know sole practitioner um and their growth rate they would just passed all their medical exams and they'd just become authorized as a gp the growth rate on their income was massive and the bank the little person in the branch didn't understand it so they were going back like to their 2016 year tax return and basing the loan application on that and they said you could borrow 300 and then when I actually crunched the numbers based on the growth curves and I said, look, I've got connections with people in the banking who are who specialise in medical practitioners and they will see that growth curve and be able to incorporate that into your loan application. So they went out, they were stoked after that meeting and they went out and bought a $700,000 house, you know, because the light was on. So I helped them with that. So they're the deals that I'm working with. Um, they're all different, but... Um, the one in Victoria, they had heaps of equity. They were really good savers. They just needed someone like me to motivate them to go on to the next level and buy that next investment property. The doctor, while I was solving a problem for them, they they were renting for ages and I had a meeting with them and I was able to demonstrate that they could afford their house and that was like revelation big time for them. And then those other two deals, which I've sort of gone into in a lot of detail. So they're the
1: deals that are coming across my desk as a loan broker.
0: Mm-hmm. Does, does that
1: enlighten you? Oh, certainly interesting. No rest for the wicked, as they say, by the sounds. But then you're talking about, though, though, Kim, and this is probably, you know, where the uh, the ask you anything side of it probably comes into it is, you know, you're talking about the, the guys had lots of equity, etc., and they're, um, you yeah, know, buying an investment property or something like that. And I suppose, you know, listening to your podcast and that when I'm driving, driving around and and having to think about it and then, you know, do napkin math myself or, you know, you watch the news and everyone's talking about interest rates and and everything there. And, you know, um, I remember I asked you a question a while ago and it was around... You know, you build up all this equity. Mm. You know what's the good of it? And obviously, in one of the earlier podcasts, you've obviously explained that. You know, that's a uh, one of the the ways that you can actually use that that, that generated wealth through through equity, etc. Is obviously instead of a traditional superannuation, it's actually a retirement sort of strategy, or, or that is one of the strategies you can use with generating your wealth through multiple investment properties, etc. But, but one of the one of the thoughts that keeps popping into my mind there is generally speaking and you know something's only really worth what someone's prepared to pay for it and uh, you know in you know you you spoke about the GFC you know earlier on and you know whilst it'd be nice to you know say that hey that's never going to happen again because we've all learned from our mistakes and history will tell you a, a very different story is you know so in that there so you know let's just say that I've gone out and I've got my my principal property and I've got an investment property and, you know, interest rates take a spike or, you know, like the Reserve Bank completely, mm. you know, does us a, a disfavour and, uh, you know, hikes all the interest rates up, you know. Uh, you know, what's what's the thought process? What's the strategies, you know, when when the times do get tough on that? Well, There's probably a few questions in there for yeah, you. Yeah, so.
0: okay. Well, let's just take it – I like the interest rate one because really um, – this story comes up again and again where people have said, oh, my mum and dad, they ran that business when interest rates were 17%. And it's like, wow, you know, how could anyone operate in that sort of environment? I haven't seen the 17% interest rate. Well, I have, but I was an investor back then. Sorry, I was like, I had, I don't know, 20 or 30,000 in a term deposit. And I was getting, I don't know, 11% from a Sander Finance every time I'd roll over for three another three months but what I, what I have seen is um, I can't even remember exactly the year but I think we had um, 11 interest rate rises in a row and I had a lot of debt and interest rates hit 9.25% now bearing in mind that at the moment they're sort of sub four um, I Panicked. I was getting very stressed. Every Tuesday when there was an RBA announcement, I was tuning in big time. So what I did was I fixed my rate at 9.25. I, um, I, looking back, I think that's what you'd call being a nervous investor because if you look at the interest rate growth curve, um, that was actually right at the top. So my timing was lousy. but. I knew that if I'd locked it in at that, that if there were more coming that I didn't know about, more interest rate rises, I'd be okay. I could tread water. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I could meet my commitments and I was going to be okay. And that was going to give me, I think I locked them in for um, three years or something. Anyway, that was a huge mistake, but it was a solution to that problem, right? So, um, Leading on from that, interest rates, unbeknown to me, about six months later, dropped 3%. Because, and I remember exactly when it was, it was it was only 12 months out from the GFC. It was actually less, it was might've been six months. Um, but I can remember that it was in November and the GFC hit and the government immediately reduced interest rates by 3%. But I was locked in. Um, so, well, the RBA dropped them by 3%. So um, I did what any young entrepreneur would do. I rang the bank and I said, oh, look, I made a mistake. Can I get out of that, That um, um, you know, locking in of interest rates that I did? And they said, oh, um, well... You can't actually get out of it because you've signed some paperwork, but we'll calculate what it will cost to break that agreement that you've got with us. I'm thinking, that's weird. But I was thinking, oh, it might only be a couple of thousand. Anyway, they rang up and they said it was going to be $25,000 just to basically screw up that piece of paper that I'd signed, I don't know, two weeks earlier and reset them to the variable rate. So... Um, I'd covered, it was like an insurance policy that I'd taken out, but it was a huge cost to me. And if I, looking back now for me, I'll never fix again, because variable rates are always gonna be cheaper. Well, they always have been, uh, like a half a percent cheaper than fixed rates. And I'm not saying this is advice, I'm just saying this is what's worked for me. Um, So I've gone variable since then, and it's always held me in good stead. because by the time you know everyone will come out every two or three years and say, rates are gonna go through the roof, fix. Now's the time, and people do race out and do that. But I haven't, I've just st- stuck with variable rates. Um, as my income's grown, there's been less concern about rates because there's, um, I guess there's, you know, I'm able to afford my rates because they seem relatively low and my rent keeps going up and up and interest rates have been on hold, on hold for quite a while now. Um, but interest rates on variable have given me flexibility as well because you might want to break a fixed rate for a number of reasons, but one might be you might be selling the property. But if it's fixed, you'll have to pay a penalty. So I think that variable rates should actually be higher than variable fixed rates because there's like a premium to be paid for having the flexibility of being able to do whatever you like. And I think for me, historically, I think what I'm saying is variable rates have been lower than fixed rates. So if you want to take advantage of the discount, you don't fix. So that's what, like, if they were going to skyrocket out of control, in answer to your question, I would fix my rate so that I'm limiting my exposure. Uh, you know, if, if push came to shove, if they, if they powered on through nine and they were going 12, 13, 14, I'd probably fix at some point because this is just spiralling out of control. I'd probably do it again um, if I got really, really worried, but I'd be more relaxed. And I'd I'd ride out the nine because as as they're going up from three through nine, I'd be wanting to go way above that. Like, if, and we're talking, if they went up, there would be you know so many there would be a bloodbath. But I would have to make a call at some point. I reckon, if there was a spiralling, like if there was hyperinflation or whatever, that's what I'd do. Um, but the other thing too was that GFC was really good as an investor because even though property prices came off the boil a bit, like ten to twenty percent. Um, still, my rent stayed at the same rate. And some of, I didn't fix all of my rates, the ones that were still on variable, um, they actually, um, the, the, the difference between the rent, as you can imagine, and the much lower interest rate, was huge. And then once that three-year period ticked over, I was back to variable rates, and so that discrepancy was massive still, and property prices were probably stagnate, stagnated for a while, but then when they did kick again, Rather than going up at year six seven percent a year, they kicked it like twelve percent. You know, so uh, I always view in my mind that there's this gradual increase in property prices in my mind curve. And if they do stagnate, they will uh, auto correct to that line at some point. Are there any s aspects of that question they want me to expand on?
1: No, that's 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 pretty clear. I mean, that's from the you know the side of the fence of someone who who owns the properties and is paying off the properties. But what about the guys? You know, let's look at that the other side of the fence. You, you, your interest rates are going up. Are you concerned, you know, if you have an interest rate hike, for example, that it's going to make, you know, uh, loan facilities unreachable for a lot more people, therefore the properties you've got, if you wanted to offload them or sell them, you, you wouldn't be able to? Is that something that you concern concerned about? Or is it, yeah, once I again, think, is it a I ride think, out the storm?
0: Um, yeah, you know, it-, it is. I, when all of that, went down i had a few sleepless nights but in hindsight i thought you know at some point i woke up and i thought you know what i'm gonna be all right i had a massive debt and i sailed through it um quite comfortably a couple of things i learned out of it though the big banks the big four they were protected by the government The second tier lenders got hammered. A lot of them went broke. If you'd borrowed money thinking you were clever and getting a lower rate with them, um, you're in big strife. They called in loans and all sorts of things. Um, So yeah, now now just getting back to your question, I think that the quality, quality of property also is really important. Like, so if you go out and you buy, let's just talk about, so you've got two properties. If you've done your homework and you've bought what I say are blue chip first time hop, um, properties, like I'm just talking Adelaide, but this doesn't always apply, but Eastern Suburbs, single fronted Bluestone Cottage. They're my favourites. Driveway down the side. Close to a main road. <laughs> well, um, not on the main road. Not I'm on a the main road. Sleepy, sleepy side street. Yeah. Um, if you've bought them, then I think that you're going to find that even if things do go a little bit topsy-turvy, people are still going to have somewhere to live and they're going to still want to live in those spots. So you've got a level of insulation there, right? So that those prices are sort of sticky upwards. They're not going to – not everyone's going to race out and there's going to be fire sales on those properties because, you know, even though there's a bit of financial instability, Lee's still going to need a place to live. Lee's still going to – Um, operate and he's still going to need somewhere to park his car Uh, you know he's still going to go shopping and all of that stuff is still going to happen you're still going to have your life that's the beauty of property Um, a lot of people are prepared to hang on even through the tough times unlike shares which are just you know that you often see them in free fall that generally doesn't happen with property I mean it probably does during the Great Depression but hey Who's around to describe all of that? But, stock market of 87, um, I think you saw property, uh, share prices go down by 50% at that point. Now, the other thing is, if with your investment property, now people will go out to more speculative areas to buy those investment properties, and this is where I think where they're making mistakes. And they'll also buy shacks and things like that, and rent them out. Now, if things get tight, The peripheral areas are the first ones where people will offload assets, right? So, and you'll be able to buy rental properties and shacks at lower prices because they're um, discretionary spends, right? But if you've got your investment property embodied in areas which are close to the city in the eastern suburbs, in those tightly held suburbs, well, then you're going to have them insulated as well. Right, so I guess what I'm saying is, um, and, and, and banks will do this as well, when they're valuing properties, they'll hammer the outer lying suburbs and they'll overprotect the inner, more blue chippy suburbs. So I guess you've got to have the quality asset. You've got to have the blue chip stuff and you'll be better. And I guess that's probably the blue chip shares too in the stock market we're probably less hammered in those crashes than the speculative stocks. But, but you know, don't be, well, this is for advice for me. I'm just talking to myself. This is a note for self. But you'll hear the property sproikers coming out and saying, oh, buy in Salisbury. Um, you're going to double your money in however many years and the rental returns are out of control. But It's almost like buying in mining villages, you know, when the mine's cranking, everyone's happy, but as soon as the iron ore price drops, those places become ghost towns and your properties are falling in value like crazy. So I think that you've got to be a bit more cautious. And and now with the current environment, like there's a banking royal commission and all of that, borrowing money is going to get harder. So you've just got to be smarter and you've got to be cleverer and you've got to give yourself more levels of protection. So. For me, that means that if I'm buying another property now, I want it to come with its own cash flow so that if there is a storm, I might have to supplement it temporarily, but it's washing its own face. You know, I'm not going to take massive punts on properties and borrow millions of dollars, which will draw on my existing income streams. I'm going to only walk into properties now for myself where there's a really sure income stream there. Like, because I'm predicting we're going to have a storm coming up and I want to be able to weather that storm as best I can. So I'm predicting a crashing properties, not massively, I'm still acquiring them, but the ones that I'm acquiring are ready for the storm. You know, like, so for example, if I'm buying an expensive commercial property in Adelaide, it'll come with an accounting firm. Guarantee cash flow there. Interest rates go up, the cash flow from the accounting firm will supplement it. Now, everyone does have to do that, but you, that, that might mean for other people that if they're buying it, it comes with a tenant or it's really easy to rent or the return on it is really strong or if they make a few changes, then the rent will be high and be great and, and well and truly pay the interest and maybe principal, you know.
1: You know what I mean? I do. Yep. Sorry. No, that's all right. That's all right.
0: Carry on. Sorry, I've, I've just... Let, let you hang there, but um Yeah, that, that sound
1: you can hear is the cogs turning upstairs at the moment.
0: <laughs> Something's burning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, yeah, so, you know, what you're saying is there, you know, stick to your your, your blue chip, your properties, and, and preferably find the, you know, not, not the, not the um, you know, really bad fixer-uppers, but something that you can add a bit of value to yourself, you know. So off of that, it's a pretty safe assumption that, you know, buying new, probably isn't the uh no. the most recommended strategy there.
0: No, buy... Well, I like buying the old ones, the run-down ones. And the ones that when you're looking at realestate.com, you go, gee, that's cheap. And it sticks out like, you know, dog's ears. And you do the research and you go, well, I can see that might be an issue, but I don't think that that's going to be a problem for me to fix. You know, but everyone else is put off by it. Might be car bodies in the front yard or lime lime green paint on all of the you know the features of the front wall and um or a massive tree in the front yard or you, you know or or doesn't have access off a road that you don't think it'd be too hard to put access in off the road or um no driveway down the side because it's overgrown with creepers and you know all of, all those little things that you can fix up and rectify that aren't going to cost the world I'm looking for those opportunities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Um, now, I'm gonna help you out here because if we look at our list, um, now, that that one's a good one. What about super balance versus a property portfolio? You were talking before we press record about uh, how is it better to have a massive super fund balance or a massive property portfolio.
1: Well, it's yeah, we we're talking about it before, and I think it it touches on a, a question I asked you in in one of the earlier, you know, podcasts, and you, you talk about you know accumulating your wealth, etc. You know, is it? And I, mean, I suppose the best way to, to wrap it up is that exact question is you know, you know, am I better to have a you know X Y Z size property portfolio, or you know that in super? You know, what would a, a strategy be? You know, for, for planning for retirement in that strategy.
0: Well, it really depends. Um, like, you know, using the doctor scenario again, they get massive um, concessions on investing in super funds for for a number of reasons. Um, that's not applicable to everyone. For me, I've found that I have invested outside of superannuation because of the flexibility the thing i don't like about building a property portfolio inside of super i mean you can build share portfolio and manage funds and all of that and that's fine and many people do and that works well Um, i've just found that i've been able to get a lot more flexibility like sorry i've been able to borrow a lot more money if my property portfolio or all my time and energy is is into a property portfolio which is outside of superannuation because as soon as i go into superannuation and you can buy property in there It's just that the thing I don't like is if you have one property and let's just say it's worth $500,000 and you pay it off, you can't borrow against that equity that you've got in that property to buy property number two. They've gotta be standalone. Whereas outside of super, you can stack them up one against the other and that's phenomenal. So you buy property one and you pay it down or it goes up in value and you've paid $500,000 for it, and it's now worth 800. Well, you can borrow against that property, you know, like you can borrow enough to get the deposit for number two against property one, and on and on it goes. You know, and and once you get three or four properties, you find they're all going up in value, so you get a multiplier effect. So I think that um, I've done better by investing for myself, this is not gonna apply for everyone, but investing in property outside of super. I've still got super, but I don't think it's as flexible and I can't be as creative outside of super, as sorry, inside of super as I can be outside of super. So um, all those people that are hanging their hat on saving, and this is what the government's telling people to do, tighten the belt, tighten the belt, tighten the belt, put the money into super. Build up your super balance, you're going to get concessional tax treatment. Well, you get tax concessions for having investment properties anyway, but it's just not sprocked by the government. Um, So I think that um, saving through super um, is a less aggressive way of building net wealth to building through property outside of super. And when you do retire the difference is that you might have to start selling some properties i mean i hate to do that every property i've sold like every honda motorbike i've got i've regretted every every motorbike i've sold that's been a honda i've regretted every property i've sold i've regretted but there will come a time when i'm retired or retiring and i need some cash and i'm going to have to start liquidating properties paying debt and paying tax on those on those gains on those properties i'm all f- i'm all, all Okay with that, um, and but the thing that frustrates me is even if you extrapolate the graph out further, you know, beyond that retirement deadline, you're still gonna make money, but you can't go on forever. You know, there's ongoing, there's headspace that's involved with managing your own properties. There's maintenance. There's dealing with banks. You get to a point at you know where you go, enough is enough. I'm, I'm wanting to cash in here, and I've had a great run, and I've got to get some money out so that I can. <clears throat> Stop working, and live off the profits of my property portfolio. Yep. Good. Um,
1: we've touched on pretty well everything, I think. We've gone through this. Yeah, we've gone through all the gear that we sort of yeah spoke about at the start. I think. It's sort of hard to keep track. We've bounced all over the place a little bit, really, haven't we? We have, and I like
0: that. Like, uh, we, we haven't gone through each of our items one by one. We've, we've darted, which I think has been good because it's, it's refreshing, I think, for the people listening um, that we're, we're talking as things come to mind as opposed to being structured and working through bullet points like a slideshow
1: presentation. Yeah, that's dull, colorless, and boring, <laughs> Kim. <laughs> we're not, we're never going to be that. No. So, oh, it, it's, it's, um, no, it's good for me because obviously, you know, you you, ha- you you do formulate all these questions along the way and just sort of consolidating them all, you know, is actually pretty beneficial for someone like me. Sort of, you know, puts uh, helps my headspace a little bit on where your head's at some of the times when you're not off doing motorbike trips or driver's trips or buying more properties yourself or anything like that. No. Well, Lee, let's wrap it up. Yep. Time to get another drink from the fridge. Just or- in case.
0: <laughs> Um, thank you to those people who have tuned in and I hope that you've got something out of what we've been talking about this evening.